so if uh, you're not local and this sounds like something you're interested in, uh, those can easily be found. And if you have any trouble at all, just uh, pop me an email and I'll send you a link. I also posted some on my Facebook page as well. Also, thanks for those who came out to my talk or visited me at the author table at Pagan Pride on Sunday, where I was talking about the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet as deity archetype and ideal. I got into the disinformation about her and why she's such a relevant goddess, helping us set healthy boundaries, find our sacred roar, and say no without guilt and all the rest. And if uh, you're curious about Sekhmet or you want to uh, get to know her a little bit better, maybe uh, embody her uh, as uh, archetype or her ideals, I do have a meditation available, uh, which you can easily access at no charge. You can either go to my website, uh, karentate.com, and once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page. Scroll down a bit, and you'll find the meditation there. Uh, If you have my book, Goddess Calling, Uh, It's in there. And uh, this meditation might actually be on YouTube, too. Uh, I can't remember for sure, but uh, it's easily uh, accessible. All right. Well, um, turning to tonight's show, uh, first up is Laura Perry discussing modern Minoan paganism. This has been a popular topic with listeners, and I'm happy to have Laura back uh, returning to the show because she's got a second book out uh, on the subject. And then tonight, my second guest is Starhawk. Uh, she's here with me discussing uh, her new audio book that's coming out this fall, um, uh, you know, audio book of her book, uh, The Fifth Sacred Thing. So uh, if that sounds interesting to you, maybe you haven't had a chance to actually read the book. Maybe you're a slow reader like I am and you'd rather listen. Well, now's your chance because the audio book uh, for The Fifth Sacred Thing is uh, going to be out really soon, or it may be out right now. Starhawk will have to give us an update. And uh, if you're patient and stay with me till the end of the show, I have some news uh, from the Hopi elders I think you'll want to hear, as well as some practical advice for pet lovers out there from the Humane Society regarding disaster preparedness for your animals and five ways you can help animals if that's the kind of action uh, or social justice that calls to your heart to help make the world a better place. Yes, indeed. So uh, let me um, turn my attention to uh, my first guest tonight, Laura Perry, and I'll start uh, with her, her short bio. Uh, Laura is a pagan author and artist. Uh, she has long been fascinated by ancient cultures and spirituality, particularly the Minoans of ancient Crete. Her first book was published in 2001, and she continues to write both fiction and nonfiction. In addition, she has created a Minoan tarot deck and a Minoan-themed adult coloring book, and she teaches online courses in modern Minoan paganism. So, Laura, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Well, you know, um, I'm so glad you're doing this. I, I find this Minoan paganism uh, just uh, so provocative. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, I found out recently that I had uh, DNA from the Iberian Peninsula and that Mediterranean region. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, a DNA memory or something. Uh, but, you know, there's something about the Minoans, you know, maybe because I, we think that they were one of the, uh, you know, early egalitarian 
Hungarian societies. But uh, I just love that you're doing this, and um, you know, you're you're bringing it back for us to reconstruct and uh, you know uh, uh, find a way to incorporate it into our lives. I just I really think it's important to be bringing this stuff forward now when it feels like so much change is happening and there's really a place for it. Um, yeah, I uh, I actually headed down the Minoan path because I was entranced um, from, from the uh, high school art history class um, when the teacher showed us the frescoes, the bull leaper and the dolphins from ancient Crete and something just clicked in me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And every instant, yeah. And so I started, you know, following the few threads that were available, and um, I've kind of had to forge my own path because there wasn't a whole lot out there. Yeah, and 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 that's, um, but you know, I think it's important that we also uh, follow our divine inspiration. I mean, I was talking uh, briefly about uh, the goddess Sekhmet in my opening, and uh, there's a dearth of information about her too. You know, we know about her porch of drunkenness. We know about that horrible myth where she's practically a mercenary for her father, which I reject a hundred percent. I I think that was totally a patriarchal myth and. Um, probably her real stories have been lost beneath the sands of time somewhere. I can just imagine that there'll be some incredible temple discovered and, uh, you know, buried under the sand will be uh, everything we've ever wanted to know about uh, Sekhmet pre-patriarchy, you know. Um, but uh, how, I mean, do, do, you, um, do, do you hope to one day actually walk, uh, walk, you know, the ground at Crete or, um, uh, I mean, or have you yet? I mean, is, is that something you aspire to do or have done? Uh, it is something that I aspire to do. I have traveled a lot. I have been very blessed to be able to travel a fair amount in my life, but Crete is still on the to-do list, sadly. Um, I will get there, I swear it, because there is some kind of thread attaching me. It's Ariadne's thread, I suppose. That, uh, <laughs> probably past that, that life stuff. Yeah. 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 Probably you, past you know, life the, Min- the, the Minoans were actually part of old Europe, like Maria Gambutas talked about. They were some of the original inhabitants of Europe before the Indo Europeans came. So, absolutely, they were part of that. Um, egalitarian society that Rihanna Eisler talks about. Absolutely. And and I assume that's what you were alluding to when you said um, uh, you think it's so important to be reconstructing this today. Is 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 that correct? Or uh, elaborate right. on that a bit. Well, okay. Here here's the thing. Um, what. Uh, what we call the patriarchy or the, the toxic masculinity of this really unbalanced uh, cultural process that we've been in the throes of for a couple thousand years now, um, it does a disservice to all of us, men and women alike. Um, and so there are, are lots of people out there who really feel a need for some kind of balance so that they can be recognized as multifaceted beings. You know, we all have both masculine and feminine within us. And the truly, the, the thing that I find truly astounding about ancient Crete, I guess because it's one of the few glimpses that we get into what life was really like before that patriarchal bias hit, is that it really was 
an egalitarian society. Um, you see sort of remnants of that in, in uh, pharaonic Egypt, but mm-hmm. it, it's, really, it's really very strong in Minoan Crete, and it, it's a setting, both a, uh, a ritual and a psychological setting, that allows our minds and our hearts to open and to encompass the idea that we are all these spiritual, multidimensional beings that are capable of so much if we choose not to limit ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I heard a lecture once, um, uh, you know, uh, a, re- a religion scholar, a history scholar, uh, was talking about how they had uncovered, um, oh, uh, records, uh, you know, which proved that, uh, you know, women there were equal in Crete. You know, they, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't this, you know, patriarchal, domination it wasn't this uh marginalization i mean you know women owned companies women employed people uh you yeah. know women owned property you know uh it it wasn't the world that patriarchy created uh to subjugate women that uh right. you know we still unfortunately have around today um well and and you know and i talk a lot about you know the importance of um you know, rewriting myths, reinterpreting the myths, you know, because the stories, the rituals we do, you know, these are the things that shape our society, you know. And, you know, we have to think about, you know, the people who had an agenda that wrote these patriarchal myths that, um, you know, put in place these patriarchal rituals or, or, um, uh, you know, the way, just the way society is structured, they had an agenda. And, you know, I, I, I would imagine you would agree, you know, that it's so important for us to uh, take it upon ourselves, you know, almost feel obligated to, um, you know, to create a new normal, to um, to rewrite the myths, to reinterpret the myths, to rewrite uh, you know, to make this spirituality relevant today. I mean, I, I know our group did that with um, ISIS-oriented uh, rituals when we had our nonprofit. You know, talk a little bit about how you've been able to uh, revive um, Minoan paganism, you know, because you said, you know, you had to do it from threads. Um, you know, how did you fill in the blanks? Yeah, if you want to, if you'll... Bear with me while I flog a metaphor. So we're taking those threads and trying to reweave the tapestry so we can see what the picture originally looked like. And the thing about the Minoans is that we can't read the script that they wrote with. Um, The Mycenaean Greeks, who were not an evil people, but they were patriarchal Indo-Europeans, came down toward the end of Minoan civilization And among other things, they borrowed the scripts that the Minoans used, but they used it to write their Greek language. And we can read that. And so that's from like Homer's time onward. So we know what the Greeks had to say about the Minoans, and it mostly wasn't very nice. It's kind of like the things the Romans said about the Druids. You know, it's it's definitely... Yes, yes. So it's definitely a PR smear. So for instance, the the Greeks talk about Ariadne being essentially a girl with a ball of string, right? But we know she was mm-hmm. a goddess, a full goddess in the Minoan pantheon. 
And the Minotaur was not some monster that devoured, you know, Athenian kids. He is a a totemic god who has great uh, great power and strength and can teach us how to deal with our own darkness in a healthy way. So yeah. essentially, lar- large portions of the uh, of the Minoan pantheon were demonized by the Greeks, and this is a common thing that happens between cultures around the world. They were not the only people who have ever done that. So what we're trying to do is tease out what what was originally there. And what it looks like is um, this beautiful pantheon headed by a mother goddess, Rhea, the, the great mother Rhea who was the island of Crete itself, the very earth that gave birth to the people and the animals and the plants. And all of the other deities um, are her family. So we have... Uh, Ariadne, who actually um, the Eleusinian mysteries appear to have begun on Crete uh, in Minoan times. So the Demeter and Persephone myth, the original version, involved Ariadne um, and apparently didn't involve her actually being abducted but choosing to travel to the underworld as part of her responsibility to take care of the ancestors and the spirits of the dead. And so that's a totally different mindset from the submissive mm-hmm. woman being being captured and carried away, it's a mindset of a fully responsible, mature adult woman of her own volition taking on um, a great sacred responsibility. And so, yeah. when you look yeah. when you look at the myth from a different viewpoint, it changes the way the whole world looks. Of course, so, because we know when yeah. we, we know when we have these patriarchal versions of the myths, like uh, Hades abducting and uh, raping or dominating Persephone, forcing her down into the underworld. That sort of just gives license to human men to do bad things too. Right. Um, you, you know, for listeners, again, this goes back to we have to take it upon ourselves to reject these stories because we know these stories uh, shape our culture. Um, I want to just throw in here real quick, um, if people are really interested in reading some pre-patriarchal stories, uh, myths, um, they can find in used copies, uh, like on places like Amazon, a book written by uh, Carol Christ called The Lost Goddesses of Ancient uh, Greece. And she has a pre-patriarchal myth of Demeter and Persephone, Pandora, uh, many, many of the, uh, you know, the early uh, Greek goddesses, you know, probably a dozen in there, and they're short and they're quick, and it really gives you a sense of a different, like you said, Laura, a different mindset, you know, which creates a different worldview, you know, creates Um, different human beings. I would like to interject, I believe that book is by Charlene Spretnack. Oh, you're right. What did I say? What did I say? You said Carol Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you for that correction. Who has also written some very awesome books. But, yeah, Yeah, Lost Goddesses is one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I go back to that time and time again and use yes. that as an example uh, to show people the difference. I mean, for instance, in her uh, Pandora story, you know, Pandora doesn't open the box and all the ills of the world come out. Uh, you, Pandora opens the box and everything we need to live in joy and peace yes. and sustain ourselves comes out, yes. you know. Because Pandora so, um, means all giver, so yeah. So, um, so, so, tell us more um, about uh, uh, you know the Crete and the Minoans, and and you know do you know what's the latest information too about um, you know Crete's destruction? Are we still you know thinking it was the um, the volcanic eruption in Thera or Santorini as we call it now? Um, they have actually done a, a lot of redating. Um, with carbon-14, dendrochronology, even ice cores. And they have figured out, believe it or not, that Sarah erupted several centuries before the end of Minoan civilization. So believe wow. it or not, that, that enormous catastrophe did not destroy them. Um, hmm. so, so the Minoans started what we think of as the Minoans with like the big temple complexes and the fancy cities with the paved streets and the enclosed sewers and everything. Um, that's somewhere around uh, 1900 to 1800 BCE. And mm-hmm. um, they've pretty accurately dated the eruption of Syrah to roughly 1625 uh, BCE within maybe five years either direction. Um, and so what happened was that enormous tidal wave just swamped the north and eastern coast of Crete, which is just south of the mainland of Greece. Um, and it destroyed um, a lot of the big cities. And um, it turns out Crete was a lot more populated than we thought it was. They're finding more and more cities and temples all the time. So it might even have been more populated in Minoan times than it is now, which is pretty wild to think about. Yeah, um, yeah. It took them them the better part of a century to really fully recover from that catastrophe, largely because they, they think... Um, what they've reconstructed is the um, all of those enormous pithoi, the huge um, six-foot-tall jars full of grain and oil that were stored in the temples in time, for times of disaster were all stored on the ground floor. And so the tsunami just took them all out. And so wow. their emergency... So their emergency food was gone. So, you know, people were killed, obviously, from the the tidal wave itself, but also a lot of people probably starved. Um, And uh, so it took them, um, it was a full century before their population was back to to pre-tsunami levels. But they survived. They rebuilt their palaces even even, uh, bigger than before. Um, And they kept on going. So what it looks like now... um, is that um, somewhere around 1450 to 1400 BCE, um, someone or a group of someone systematically looted and burned all the temple complexes across the whole island except for Knossos. And, of course, my money is on the Mycenaeans. Um, right. The, the Minoans were wealthy. Um, they were really wealthy, and this is this is kind of ironic, considering that they were apparently such a peaceful, non-militaristic society. They appear to have been the world's first arms dealers. Um, <clears throat> they, yeah, 
yeah, kind of surprised me too. They um they had they made the best bronze. They had a secret recipe for the uh proportions of the copper and the tin. They made the best bronze in the Bronze Age apparently. And so they made um spearheads and daggers and swords and all that kind of thing and they traded them. They were they were a mercantile society. And they had these huge ships that traded all over the Mediterranean. Um, out into the Atlantic and possibly down the western coast of India as well. So they essentially sold weapons to everybody. Now, granted, wow. they also sold, they also sold olive oil, wine, wool. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the Phoenician purple dye before the Phoenicians did. That was one of their big items. So they were they were wealthy. The Mycenaeans were a very warlike society, and compared to the Minoans, they were culturally primitive. They weren't stupid people by any means. But they didn't have the architecture. They didn't have, you know, the sort of political infrastructure. And so everyone's best guess at this moment is they tried to take over because they wanted that arms trade. Yeah. And when that didn't happen, they simply burned the place to the ground, more or less. Um, And so every every single temple complex across the island, except for Knossos, was systematically looted and burned all right at about the same time. And then 50 wow. years later, 50 years later the same thing happened to Knossos. So, mm. you know, yeah, and the, there were still people there. Obviously, they fled the cities. Um a great many of them probably got in ships and sailed. Yeah. Um yeah. So how do how do we so. know that, Laura? I, you know what you just you know the stuff about them you know selling copper and arms and and this uh you know this we think maybe the mycenaean um uh, uh you know rampage uh you know to destroy everything is 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 you know where does where does that information come from it comes from putting together the picture of the artifacts that have been found um okay they they traded um they traded extensively all around the Mediterranean, so Minoan artifacts, everything from blades to pottery, obviously no cloth at this time, but seals and things have been found all over. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me about archaeology is that they can analyze the clay in a piece of pottery or the metal in a bronze blade and tell you where the where it came from, where the ingredients for it came from. So, for instance, we know that the Minoans traded as far north as Cornwall because they got tin from there to use in their bronze. Um, um, okay. And so, yeah, it's amazing that, and a lot of this stuff never makes it into the public eye. It's in some archaeological journal somewhere because it's, you know, in a table of data and statistics that doesn't yeah, look terribly exactly. interesting. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. I hear that all the time from from academics that I know. You know, uh, things will get published maybe in an academic journal, but you know, the it it never becomes public knowledge. You know, to the mainstream world, unless somebody right. like you who's interested in it ekes it out uh, painstakingly. You know, d- um, goes on goes and researches it, and uh, you know, finds it in some obscure uh, academic journal or something, yeah. um, or even even not necessarily obscure, but, you know, not probably the journals that most people pick up and read anyway. 
Um, so, you know, I, I know when we were in Crete and we went to the um, Kenosis uh, Museum there, I mean, just an incredible place. And, you know, you, you see the uh, the snake goddess and the goddess with the cat on her head. And uh, you see these beautiful little gold rings. And, you know, people are paying tribute or making offerings to a woman. Um, you know, what do we know that we feel like we can safely say um, about, uh, you know, what their religion was like. I mean, um, I, I'm sure you've probably looked into that. Oh, yeah. I wrote a couple books about it even. Um, so a good portion of what we know comes from pictures because we can't read what they wrote. But a good another portion of it also comes from the stuff the Mycenaeans wrote because the Mycenaeans borrowed huge swaths of the Minoan pantheon and religion um, into their own. And so, and, and we can look at the, uh, the temple, the remains of the temple complexes and see what people did. And the nice thing about the way the archaeologists have worked on Crete is that they have also investigated private homes. So we know what people did at home as well as in the big buildings, the um, the temple complexes in ancient Crete served pretty much the same function as the temple complexes in Mesopotamia. So they were religious centers, but they were also administrative centers. And like in Mesopotamia, the uh, cities in Crete each were governed independently. There was not, you know, a sort of federal government at Knossos and, and then not, and yes. Yeah, so, so the separate, the cities ruled themselves. And so we look at the... Um, we look at the buildings and we can see that there are ritual rooms. The throne room um, is, is a famous one. Um, and we can see that there are places for libations, uh, for poured offerings. There are even um, little moats around the columns in the basement of several of the temple complexes for pouring wine and other offerings. Um, so we know they did poured offerings, and there are tons and tons of rikons, which are pitchers that are specially made for ritual offerings, for poured ones, including some really stunningly beautiful ones of uh, female figures where the liquid pours out the breast. So mm. that's very, very evocative, you know, of the sort of mother goddess nurturing her people. Right. Um, we know they did animal sacrifice. This is a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of people for obvious reasons, but it's in the art. It is shown unequivocally. Um, uh, calves, young cows or steers and um, goats are shown being sacrificed, so we know they did that. Um, we know they burned incense. We've got the incense burners with the residue in them. Um, we know that the people in their homes set up shrines and altars just like pagans do today. Um, and I, I suspect, based on what we have found on those shrines and altars, that the goddess of the sea was a very big part of their lives. I mean, Crete is an island. And uh, mm -hmm. a, great, a great many of the people made their living either fishing or sailing off as merchants. Um, so it would have been very important to them to to make sure that Grandmother Ocean protected those people while they were out there and kept them safe. So there are beautiful seashells. Um, 
And then, of course, we have the images, the ritual images in the frescoes and on those gold seal rings that you were talking about. Um, right, right. Which they didn't actually wear on their fingers. The loops are too small. Um, the artwork shows them being strung on a cord and hung around someone's wrist. So that's actually oh, how they well, and, well, and that's that way interesting. Yeah, and that way it's loose so you can smash it into a little lump of clay and make your seal impression. But, yeah, the frescoes huh. show them being worn on a wrist. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, so you know, the, I, I mentioned the snake goddess and the other uh, goddess popular from, you know, from Crete with the uh, cat on her head. I mean, what right. do we really know about those two um, images? You know, or I, I think I someone said that they harken back to an early aspect of Athena. Um, you know, but I, I don't know. I mean, what have you what have you found about? Uh, these goddesses do, uh, or, or even like you said, um, Mother Ocean. You know, do, do we know what their goddesses were actually called, aside from maybe Ariadne? Um, we we have a whole bunch of goddess names from the Linear B tablets. Those are the ones the Mycenaeans wrote down, and so um, we do know some of the goddess names. And there is one goddess who is called Atana Potnia. And uh, it is assumed that that is the original version of Athena. Uh, Potnia means, uh, it's often translated as mistress, but it means lady, the way we would call someone, you know, lady so-and-so. These days mm-hmm. it's a title. Um, so, yeah, um, we, we do know quite a few of the names. Uh, I'll be honest, an awful lot of the stuff that um, that we have figured out in terms of what these deities actually, what what their facets and their qualities really are and how they interact with people, we have done that experientially. Um, mm-hmm. There's this there's this practically taboo thing called unverified personal gnosis that uh, that people like to yeah. look down their noses about. But here's the thing. Um, I discovered a few years back that, that the Norse pagan community has taken that a step further and made it actually useful. So if I were to have a vision of a goddess with a certain set of characteristics who told me that, that she was about such and such, that could just be my own fantasy. But when two dozen other people independently have similar visions with the same details, then we're on to something. And that's right. called multi- and that's called multiply corroborated gnosis. I see. And okay. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking, too, you know, too, I, I've sort of called some of this divine inspiration, you yeah. know, I, and I realize you're saying, you know, divine inspiration can come to one person, but when the, when it's um, uh, more than, you know, when when more when when several people have it, then it's it's uh, uh, more easily accepted and corroborated. You know, it, I, it makes me think about how there have been so many people channeling Mary Magdalene, you know, and how Mary. Magdalene's uh, essence and who she was. I mean, she's she's been totally rehabilitated from yes. the the character character that uh, Christianity would uh, would would have us see her as. You know, and she obviously wants to participate in the world as who she really is. 
And so yeah. there's you know, there's energy coming from her direction. And so I think there's energy coming from the Minoan deities as well. Um, the the goddesses and the gods as well. I think they've been misrepresented as well. The Minotaur obviously has been literally demonized. Um, mm-hmm. But even Dionysus, um, Dionysus began on Crete um, and was adopted by the Greeks. Um, but he he was the original. Uh, he was the, the head of the Cretan pantheon, head of the Minoan male head of the Minoan pantheon. Um, the female head, obviously, is Rhea, the great mother goddess, who I think probably outranks him. But um, the uh, when the Greeks encountered the Minoans, it was kind of like when the Europeans encountered the Native Americans. They just couldn't wrap their brains around the idea of women running anything, so they demanded mm-hmm. to speak. So they demanded to speak to the male leaders. I think that's how the Greeks interpreted the Minoan pantheon. They could not wrap their heads around the idea that the head of the pantheon was a goddess. So what they did was right. they looked for the they looked for the highest level god, who was Dionysus. And uh, Greek literature often refers to him as Cretan Zeus. So sometimes mm-hmm. when you see something referred to as, for instance, the cave on Mount Dicte being uh, where Zeus was born, that's actually Dionysus. Um, uh, okay. So, yeah. So the, um, yeah. Well, and and I know when uh, I took a group there, um, we were, believe it or not, we, it was actually a tour group uh, that was primarily interested in ISIS. And um, uh, we didn't have the benefit back then in the early 90s uh, of books like yours to uh, it, it, it could have so enhanced our trip. You know, if, if uh, you know, we had had access to uh, something like your books, and you know, so we were actually looking for sacred sites of ISIS on Crete, which we found. You know, All right. um, and I. I, and yeah, but it, it, so I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, just like some of the islands um, in, in in the Mediterranean that are you know part of Greece, um, you know th- there was this uh, syncretism. You know there was uh, yeah. they, they would always the the archaeologists would call the areas the um, oh oh the the precinct of the foreign gods, but you know there you would always have these gods from other countries, particularly. Egypt, uh, they are right. in Greece or, or Rome or Crete, and uh, I would imagine that there was, um, you know, a certain amount of overlap, uh, you know, in you know the people and and the worship and and everything. Oh, absolutely! And Egypt was probably Crete's biggest trading partner. Um, mm-hmm. So there there are um, there are Egyptian wall paintings and tombs showing uh, Minoans bringing funerary offerings. Um, there are Egyptian goods in Minoan tombs on Crete. Um, so yeah, there was there was a great deal of interaction between the two uh, cultures, and apparently the Minoans were also really excellent herbalists, great uh, medical practitioners because one of the uh, Egyptian papyri actually includes Minoan recipes for herbal remedies, and, and they are wow. specifically list, listed as that as coming from Crete. So, yeah, so there was, there was a great deal of cultural interaction. 
Well, and let me ask you this, and, and I mean, I know because of our own, you know, contemporary cultural mores, these are <clears throat> difficult things to talk about, just like, you know, the animal sacrifice. But we have to remember, these people were living at a different time, and, you know, right. they didn't see things uh, the way the way we actually do. Um, I recall, uh, b- because you seem to have so much more current information, I remember back in 05 when I was writing Sacred Places of Goddess, and I, uh, I, I was, you know, scanning some of the areas like, you know, Crete for, you know, what, what was I going to include in the book? And I stumbled across information that archaeologists were finding uh, where children had actually been sacrificed, and they thought that it was uh, and maybe perhaps an act of desperation because the people were struggling uh, so much to survive. I wonder if you know anything about that at all. Yeah, there's a there's a cave where they found a bunch of uh, of child skeletons um, that appears to date to right around the fall of Minoan culture. So we're not exactly sure whether that was um, desperate sacrifices or a massacre or what. Um, mm-hmm. There is another site called Anemospelia. On, uh, on Crete where it looks like there might have been an adult human sacrifice um, sort of in progress when an earthquake hit, possibly as a way to try to divert the earthquake or stop it. Um, this, it's, we don't like to think about um, we don't like to think about the dark side of these, these ancient cultures, but to them this wasn't dark. Um, it's repellent to us, the whole concept. But I, uh, given given what the Greeks said about um, the way Minoan religion worked, I'm fairly certain that the priesthood um, participated in human sacrifice on a regular basis, um, and it would that would be willing sacrifice, like the the uh, the goddess's consort who is sacrificed every eighth year. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the end of his reign, um, and so we we don't like to think about those things because we like for we like to pick and choose just the pretty stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. But every civilization is complex, and every civilization lives by its own rules. And to the Minoans, I have to assume that because they they. Uh, participated, they took part in this activity, they didn't think it was bad. You yeah. know, they had a they had a pretty clear conception of what they thought the afterlife was afterlife was like and how they would be taken care of by Ariadne and the uh the bee goddesses, the Melissae, um, in the underworld as as part of the spirits of the dead and I'm fairly certain they believed in reincarnation. Uh frequently uh we we find the idea that the the underworld is also the place where the souls are brought from into new children when the babies are born. Um, well, you know, so, I I think yeah. of it I think of it as a um, <clears throat> maybe uh, a form of reciprocity. 
in a sense, uh, because I'm sure, you know, they looked at uh, everything they had came from goddess, God, right. and um, and what better, I mean, how else could, you know, what more powerful or meaningful sacrifice could they make uh, to give thanks than right. um, than their own life. I mean, I know that maybe sounds strange to us, but I think they probably were very different. I mean, I was watching this. Um, maybe you've seen it. This special, uh, you know, the History Channel had this show, The Vikings, and they really seemed yeah. to have done their homework. And I remember the episode where once, uh, once every so often, I don't think it was every year. I think it was every few years they would make this pilgrimage. The whole, you know, most of the people in the town to like the Holy of Holies for. Uh, for the Vikings, and a person was chosen to be sacrificed. And, you know, they all got um, high on mushrooms, and, uh, you know, the person was chosen and sacrificed, and it was an honor, you know, uh, because this person who sacrificed himself was doing something for the benefit of his people and, you know, doing it for their God. Um, and I know that's probably more than we can stomach today, but it makes sense to me. Well, I, I think you have to look at it from the point of view that for the past 2,000 more or less years, we have thought of death as something unequivocally and inherently evil. Mm-hmm. And so it's something to be feared, to be detested, to be avoided at all costs. Um, and that's a very black and white dualistic way of looking at things. And I, I think the ancients, obviously, they were, you know, they were terribly sad when someone died. It's not like they didn't grieve, but I think they had a different view of death itself. I mean, we even see that in the death goddesses from ancient culture that death, the process of dying is sacred. Yeah. Well, and and also, too, I would venture to guess, and maybe this is just a romanticized view of ancient times, but I would would be willing to... uh, to entertain the idea that people back then might have also been more closely connected to deity um, than we are in our modern world, because you know every you know so much of their life was imbued with the sacred. You know, I don't think right. they had the disconnect that that we do in our modern lives. You know. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just feel like they maybe led a more spiritual life, more connected, and maybe that made them less afraid. Maybe. Um, yeah, they had temples the same way that we have, you know, churches and synagogues and mosques, but I, I think they're, they didn't feel like the only place the gods were within those temples and the only time you could do anything having to do with the divine was in that place and at a particular time. Yeah. It really... It really sort of penetrated their entire lives. And, you know, whether someone was a powerful mystic or just an ordinary person who was kind of happy to know that the gods were out there somewhere, it was an atmosphere that allowed for so much more. Yeah. So, yeah. um, well, well, let's let's talk about your book. I think the current one, the new one that's out, is that Labyrinths and Horns: The Introduction it to is. Modern Minoan Paganism. So, it is. and and what was the t- what was the title of the one previous to that? 
Um, that's Ariadne's Thread, which is okay. also uh, Minoan. Um, that's the first one I wrote. Um, that was that was the tap on the shoulder from the gods, <laughs> is what that was. Um, okay. The, I, it, that book was 20 years in the making. Um, I The group that I was in, I was working on my second degree, and my teacher said, here's your assignment. Pick a pantheon and write a year's worth of seasonal rituals and a lifetime's worth of rites of passage in that pantheon. Little assignment, <laughs> right? And uh, and so, uh, you know, I was looking at all the usuals, right, Celtic, Norse, Egyptian, and the universe just kept dropping Minoan stuff in my lap almost literally. And I finally took the hint. And so I wrote all those rituals, painful as that was. And over the course of several years, we performed most of them. And I ended up tweaking them because I would get, you know, a nudge here and a kick there that you can't do this. And uh, and so that, it after many years, that ended up as Ariadne's Thread. So that is um, an extensive section about the history and culture and religion of the Minoans, plus um, a year's worth of seasonal rituals and a lifetime's worth of rites of passage. And everyone loved it, but they said, you know, these rituals work really better for groups than they do for individuals. Could you write us one for solitary? And so I did, and that's Labyrinth and Horns. And so okay. it is really it is really geared toward solitaries who want to walk the Minoan path. And so it's um it is a uh a clearer layout of the Minoan sacred year as we have reconstructed it so far, the sacred calendar. Um and uh the deities and uh some daily devotionals to them, uh, and uh, some ideas about how to set up an altar and how to do the sorts of things that the average Minoan probably did in their own home at their home shrine. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's it's very much geared toward um, toward the solitary. Though obviously, you know, if you're a family or a group, you could certainly you know do it as well. Right. Um, so with these and, two, yeah. two books, one one or the other, you could literally uh, recreate as best as any human can in this, you know, in this time, uh, what you know, what it would be like to um, practice Minoan religion. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's pretty cool. And, uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So and, um, you know, both, you know I, yeah. I think. Go, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, uh, both of them, I ended up writing them honestly because they were the books I wanted to read, but they didn't exist. Yeah. So? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what better inspiration than that? Um, I, I mean that that's kind of like my sacred places book. Uh, so yeah, so yeah. much of when I started doing sacred tours, uh, a lot of these places weren't you know always on the your your average map. You know it took a lot of digging to find some of the you know some of those sacred goddess sites. You know, right? Because uh, people people just weren't thinking of them <clears throat> as sacred sites. Uh, you know you. It, 
anyway, I, I don't want to take the rest of the time talking about that. I, I want to hear about you. Uh, we probably have, I would imagine, about 10 minutes before Starhawk pops up on the switchboard here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the priesthood you mentioned. Um, do you think there was it, it was female-centric, uh, or do you think there was equality uh, in the genders, you know, particularly since we see all the bare-breasted priestesses more than I think we see male characters. Yeah, that's that's an interesting misconception that a lot of people have um, because of the way the artwork from ancient Crete has been publicized. Um, partly because the Victorian era gentleman who did the original archaeology thought that the bare-breasted women were just very interesting, and so. <laughs> those figurines and, and those frescoes have become sort of central to people's idea of what all of Crete must have looked like. So I actually okay. did a study. I, I actually did a study, and I went and looked at pretty much all the artwork from ancient Crete that I could find um, in the terms of uh, frescoes, figurines, seal stones, uh, any of that kind of thing, seal rings. And it, the art itself actually comes out just about exactly 50-50 male and female. And, and so do we think think women really actually walked around bare-breasted, or was, it, or was that just for ritual purposes, or what? Do we have any idea? Uh, I expect it was fairly normal. I mean, if you look at Egyptian art, women went around bare-breasted and children went around completely naked. Um, you have to remember that an awful lot of the whole body modesty and shame about bodies is from comes from the Abrahamic religion, um, mm-hmm. and, and a certain amount of it also comes from the uh, heavily patriarchal Greeks and Romans who insisted that women have to be covered from head to toe. Um, mm-hmm. So before that, you get um, cultures like Egypt and Greece, uh, sorry, Egypt and Crete and several of the uh, Mesopotamian cultures where uh, men and women both went around topless all the time and it was considered perfectly normal. So, um, yeah, I think, it was, I think it was so normal for them that it, they didn't even think about it. And, okay. Yeah, I, and I also suspect that just the concept of, of breasts and the nourishment of the mother was also central to their religion. So, you know, it was something to yeah. be honored. Right, right, right. Well, um, and I know you've gotten questions about do you have to be a lesbian to be interested in modern Minoan paganism. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's common. Um, there are actually two uh, very lovely organizations called the Minoan Sisterhood and the Minoan Brotherhood that have been around uh, since the 70s, as far as I know, that have their own specific interpretation of uh, the ancient Minoan uh, pantheon and rites and things. And um, they they tend to uh, be aimed at gay and lesbian people. Um, that's just, you know, that that's just the way those groups are set up. And so when people hear me say Minoan, they assume that I'm talking about a gay or lesbian group. Um, I'm not. Uh, the uh, the whole idea of modern Minoan paganism is that it's available to everyone, um, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of gender identity, because um, I'm pretty sure that's the way the ancient Minoans worked things. Um, there is uh, there is a great deal of evidence that they were extremely open-minded about all that kind of thing. 
And so, so you would uh, don't hesitate to feel that uh, hetero men, uh, you know, there's a place for them in this. Oh, absolutely! Just like there was a place for them in ancient Crete. Um, they are men are multidimensional beings too. You know, they have both masculine and feminine within them, and the the men that I know who follow a Minoan path um, find it reassuring to be able to express their devotion to the divine feminine as well as the divine masculine because that feeds something in their soul. So, yeah, I, I think it's, yeah. So, you know, so so some of these ideas we get, um, it's really just because we've overlaid our our own stuff on it. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. you know, rather yeah, rather than looking at uh, you know, what uh what facts are actually there uh of the ancient past. Yeah, so what, what do you think? Hard, would, you know? what, what, what do you think would be uh, maybe some of the most surprising things? Well, I mean, you've already said a few. You know, um, uh, you know the fact that uh, you know it wasn't destroyed by the you know by the um, the volcanic eruption and right. uh, uh, but but what do you, you know? Are there other misconceptions you think um we have about Crete or things that would surprise listeners that maybe we haven't covered already? Um they were really advanced astronomers. Um that's something that we think of in terms of Egypt and Mesopotamia, but the Minoans were very advanced astronomers. All of their temple complexes and the peak sanctuaries up on the mountaintops all have astronomical alignments. Um, and not just to the sun, but to um, to the lunar standstills, to the uh, to the risings of a number of different stars. Um, and they actually had figured out the uh, the way that the cycles of the moon, the sun, and Venus interconnect. So you have a cycle that's eight solar years long, and five Venus cycles, and 99 lunations, and it all connects in one great big cycle. And they use that as their sacred calendar. Hmm. Well, and and I know another thing that I heard, and I haven't bothered to research, and I wonder if you've stumbled across yay or nay, that maybe Crete inspired the the stories of Atlantis? That's that's quite possible. A lot of people um, believe that the uh, eruption of Thera and the subsequent destruction all around the eastern end of the Mediterranean may have been uh, may have been uh, an inspiration or at least part of the inspiration for the Atlantis legend. Um, the fact that we know now that that eruption did not destroy Minoan Crete um, kind of makes me wonder um, that maybe there was an older Atlantis legend and then the eruption of Thera was just sort of added onto it as a layer because these things happen, you know, natural disasters happen and so maybe it's maybe it, it was a resonating kind of thing with the older story. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, uh, Crete is often referred to as the Atlantis of the legends, um, even though it turns yeah. out it wasn't actually destroyed um, by that tidal so wave. What, 
what do what do we think the Minoans looked like? Would they have been uh, sort of you know brown skinned people, um, you know, uh, like we would imagine people in Egypt or the Middle East look like, um, or 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 what? Would they some of them have been lighter skinned, uh, blonde blondish hair? Um, do we know? Well, their depictions of themselves always show them with black hair. Um, the skin color is is another issue because the art is very uh, contrived. The women all have chalk white skin and the men all have really rust-colored ruddy skin, and that can't be, you know, the way it really was. Um, they the, the Minoans were part of old Europe. They were part of the original indigenous inhabitants of Europe before the Indo-Europeans came in. Um so we've, we've uh, tested their DNA. They came down from Anatolia into Europe with, during Neolithic times with all the others who spread out um, during that second wave of European uh, advancement. And everyone's best guess at this point is that they were sort of roughly tan. Um, there's no evidence that they were, uh, that any of the inhabitants of old Europe were particularly light-skinned, especially not in the Mediterranean region. Um, so really that's, you know, our best guess is they look, they look kind of roughly like the people who live there today, many of whom are actually their descendants. Yeah. Well, so. and, you know, you talked about the women were white-skinned. Um, I remember seeing a PBS special where um, this um, – a uh, woman academic recreated what Helen uh, would have looked like. And um, it, it, she was kind of amazingly bizarre looking, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I recall that you know very you know heavy makeup on the eyes and eyebrows. But I, I almost I almost think I remember that they made the face kind of whitish, with a silly kind of little hat on her head. I mean, um, uh, you know. Anyway, I wish I could remember exactly. I, I just. Uh, my memory is a little bit vague, but I remember the impression was, ooh, you know, that's, that, you know, I wouldn't have expected that at all. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it just, um, it, it, it was rather strange looking, to tell you the truth. And uh, oh. when you said, you know, that they were always, um, you know, they made the women's faces look white, uh, especially since Helen was from, uh, I mean, I think she was from the, from the uh, Mycenaean Greeks. Uh, Greeks, right? right? Um, right. I wonder if maybe some of that white that that you're you're talking about on the Minoan women, I I wonder if maybe that was a kind of makeup they used to use. I guess it could have been, but their whole bodies are portrayed as white. Um, I've always figured, I've always, yeah, I've always figured it was an artistic convention, like in Egyptian art, the men are always that ruddy color and the women are always yellow. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. Um, it, in Minoan art, the men are always that ruddy color, and the women are always chalk white. Um, okay. They did, use make, they did use makeup. We know that, and, and it's, you know, visibly shown as makeup in some of the frescoes. And there have been, okay. they found residues in, in containers. So they used, they used coal and eyeshadow like the way the Egyptians did, and they used alkanet root for lipstick. You know, so they did use makeup, and for all we know, the men used it too, just like in Egypt, so... Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, well, Laura, I see uh, Starhawk uh, has, uh, you know, she's on the switchboard now, So, uh, and we're right about 7 o'clock, so uh, she's right on time here, and so we're going to wrap this up now, but it's been uh, it's been fascinating. I, I love the Minoan, uh, the Minoan history and the Minoan, uh, the whole story. Uh, I, I really do. I, I have a, a fondness uh, for them in, in my heart as well. Um, I, I want to thank you for this incredible research you've been doing, and you know, to reconstruct this, uh, you know, for all of us. And so, so why don't you, um, uh, in closing here, uh, if there's anything you want to say about the books or the Minoans, uh, you know, before we go, take you know, take a moment or two to do that, and you know, also please again give uh, the titles of your two books on Minoan spirituality and your website and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, well, the two books are Ariadne's Thread and Labyrinth and Horn. And you can find that and all the other stuff that I do, most of which is way terribly Minoan. <laughs> it's a theme on my website. Um, and that is my name, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, author, as in someone who writes books, .com. And it's all on there, all my social media, my books, my coloring books, the tarot deck, all of it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And uh, so what's your next project? Um, are, you, are you done writing about the Minoans, or do you think uh, there's still more you've yet to say? I cannot imagine that they will let me be done writing about them, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad for that. Well, well, thank you so much, Laura. I uh, I always enjoy talking to you, and uh, um, I, I think you're doing a valuable service uh, with this reconstruction. Thank you so much for your dedication. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Good night. And if, and uh, thank uh, thank Laura for uh, you know for her contribution. Two great books. Uh, if uh, if you're like me, those are two you probably want to make sure you have on your bookshelves. Um, and I will be getting to Starhawk in less than a minute here. But first, uh, I have to get to this word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. When I came out of this, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you were listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. 
If you have always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is a great opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. And now I turn my attention to uh, tonight's uh, second guest. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, Starhawk is uh, back with us, and she's someone who needs uh, very little introduction. She is activist extraordinaire, uh, author many times over, foremother, way shower, filmmaker. Uh, now she is also doing audio books, uh, which we will be talking about tonight. Uh, because her audiobook for uh, The Fifth Sacred Thing uh, is out this fall. It may be out now or soon. Uh, we'll have her uh, tell us in just a moment here. So, Starhawk, uh, welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be back on again, Karen. Thanks for well, having thank me. You. Well, thanks for coming on. I always like to keep track of what you're doing. And uh, you were on last uh, telling us about uh, the sequel, right, uh, to The that's Fifth right. Sacred. That's right, City of Refuge. And yeah. And that's been out, so, oh, it's almost a year now. It's hard to believe. So um, so bring us up to date on everything. You know, how is the, how is the film going uh, for The Fifth Sacred Thing? Talk a little bit about the sequel. Um, and and then uh, you know dip into uh, the audio books that are coming out. Yeah, well we're still working on pitching and trying to bring the fifth sacred thing to the screen. And um, as part of that, we really have been wanting for years to do an audio book, and we just couldn't get Bantam to think about doing it. Um, and finally, they kind of actually at least. We got them to answer us about it, which was sort of a major victory. And they decided they didn't want to do it, but they let me have the rights back to do it myself. So I've been working with a really wonderful woman named Maya Lilly, who just somehow serendipitously happens to have the name of two of the main characters in the book. And uh, (laughs) she's also an amazing actor. Uh, and voice actor, and she said, well, why don't we just do it? So we've now done an audio book for The Fifth Sacred Thing, which is just out. So people who are, have not had a chance ever to read the story can now get it as an audio book and listen to it. Uh, and if you okay. have read the story, you might enjoy hearing it in this different form. She did a beautiful, beautiful job of reading it and bringing the characters alive. Okay. And, you know, I have to confess, you're probably going to say, Karen, I can't believe what you're about to say. Um, you know, I've never really listened to an audio book of fiction. And I wondered, um, I, 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 I guess I couldn't imagine that one person would be able to play all the characters. But is that how it actually, is that how it's done? Well, there's two ways to do it. One is one person basically reads it and kind of does the voices. And the other way would be to really perform it with multiple actors. And I prefer having it read with um, the voices. You know, a good actor can create the voices um, Mm -hmm. without sort of overdoing it. 
so that you can kind of sink into the story. And it was actually a lot of fun working with Maya on it because we'd go through all the different characters and she'd go through lists of different actors or different public figures and say, you know, does this one sound like Obama or sound like, uh, (laughs) you know, Martin Sheen or sound like uh, Susan Sarandon? And I'd listen to people on the internet you know, and look them up on the internet and listen to interviews and stuff and kind of say, well, it's a little of this and a little of that. And uh, she did a wonderful job of creating the characters and bringing them alive. And it's one of the things I love about listening to audiobooks. Um, Again, a good voice actor, you know, will really bring forth those different voices for you. Right. Well, well, then how was that for you? I mean, um, I, I guess it, it, in a way it must have been kind of amazing because until now these people, you heard them in your head, you know, the way, right. yeah. uh, you know, you, you, uh, in, you know, visioned them and, and uh, brought these people to life in your mind. But now was this a, another level of um, a, a reality for these characters when you know she brought them alive in the audiobook? Yeah, it is a little strange. It's like having the voices in your head come alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> or you know, almost almost like birthing 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 characters, you know, uh-huh. uh, yeah. or, or 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 birthing a baby. You know, you carry it in your in your womb, or in your case, in your mind. You know, and and you, uh, it, but but now, you know, when it's born, it actually has a voice. Um, I don't know that that I, I would think that would be a, a pretty incredible experience. <laughs> um, you it know, like is, when somebody really. somebody's <laughs> book, you know, they see their book on the on the, on the, when a film is made of it, you know, and suddenly now the book lives, uh, you know, lives on the big screen. You know, that kind of thing. I guess. Yeah. It's. Uh... I, it's kind of like having your hallucinations <laughs> read back in living. So, um, so is it in the usual places? I mean, do you recommend if people want it, they go to Amazon or which your or yes, to your they website can get it or on Amazon and Audible and iTunes and all of those places? Okay, okay. And is so? Is there a plan to put the sequel in audiobook? Uh, yeah. Once we uh, once we sell enough of this one to pay them back for the time and energy that uh, Maya and her uh, partner, who's a sound engineer, did, then we can start doing the next one. So. Okay. Well, you you know yeah. you were you were never for lack of a project. That's for sure. That's that's true. <laughs> So um, you know, are, for, are you still uh, – go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, are you still um, hoping uh, for funding for uh, for the film? Is the Kickstarter program um, still happening, or uh, what's with that? Uh, we're looking for financing and a producer. The Kickstarter for the film was really just to do the development um, it, unfortunately, it wasn't really. We well, I mean, there's just no way to do get enough through a Kickstarter to 
make a film on the scale that The Fifth Sacred Thing would be uh, because it's a story, you know, it's not a story that lends itself to just a simple low-budget film. It, You know, it's an epic. Uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's set, for people who don't know the story, it's set in the mid-21st century and Northern California has become a kind of eco-feminist um, place in balance with nature and with respect for air and fire and water and earth, the four sacred things. And Southern California, after many social and ecological meltdowns, has become exactly the opposite. It's gone into being militarist and racist. And the story really centers on what happens when the Southlands invade the North. Um, you know, there's Maya, who's the old witch who has seen like a century of this historical struggle go on, is kind of the center of the story. And then her uh, grandson, Bird, who's a musician turned guerrilla fighter who's gone down to the Southlands, been imprisoned, comes back to warn the city that there's going to be this invasion. And then there's Madrone, who is the healer, uh, who's always struggling to really learn how to channel these tremendous powers of healing without losing herself in the process. And the story really centers around the question of how do you resist violence without becoming what you're fighting against? And... uh, you know, because of that, it's got lots of characters and lots of drama, lots of action, lots of crowd scenes. And for me, right, one right. of the most exciting aspects of it and of the sequel, City of Refuge, is this idea of showing people, you know, a vision of a possible future that's actually positive. I think it's a really hard time right now for um, for people to look into the future and feel any sense of hope and optimism and possibility. So for yeah. me as a writer, it's always been very important, you know, to show people that, you know, this is what it would look like if we put our wonderful feminist and goddess ideals into practice. Uh, this is the world that we could have. Right. Well, and you know, and, and it's interesting uh, that that we're talking about that now. I mean, I was just having a conversation with Laura Perry about Minoan Crete, that you know mm-hmm. we believe was an egalitarian society, and you know we see these egalitarian societies of Maria Gambutas and in uh, in Crete, you know, overrun by the more warlike. Um, you know, societies, uh, you know, and, and here, you know, you're, you're, you've sort of set this up with, in your, in your book, you know, the fifth sacred thing. And, you know, and, 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 and just from a, a realistic point of view, you know, you wonder, you know, how does uh, the peaceful society overcome, uh, you know, the warlike society and not become who they are? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know how 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 can they win and not be dominated, like has happened so many times over and over and over again. You know, 
um, that's uh, that's that's truly the dilemma, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for me, part of writing the fifth sacred thing came out of having done a lot of historical research on the early goddess cultures and really looking at that question of how does a society resist, you know, an incursion of a much more brutal culture without turning itself into what it's fighting against. And I don't know if there's an easy answer for that. The fifth sacred thing, they adopt a whole policy of nonviolent resistance. Um, But I do think it's one of those questions that's really worth thinking about and really worth exploring. Because we live in a world right now where we so desperately need to find some other way of relating to each other other than you know, violence and brutality and war and militarism. Um, we yeah. Really, just ecologically, we can't afford that anymore. So. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it 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 reminds me of uh, I don't know, was it uh, Ray? You know, I I don't know why I'm thinking this was Reagan. Maybe because of the Star Wars uh, project he was trying to fund, but. Um, wasn't there something said that, you know, people on Earth wouldn't come together unless they were threatened by some outside alien force? <laughs> um, you know, um, you know, maybe that would, you know, that would make the peoples of the Earth, you know, come together as one and stop fighting each other. And you know, sometimes I think it's climate change that is, you know, uh, the mother herself. You know, the thing that may force people to actually come together, you know, because because these dominator models, you know, uh, you know, the ones that don't know any better than to go in and take what they want and not work, you know, they, they aren't wired to work in partnership. It's survival of the fittest. Um, you know, they have to almost feel like they have something to lose, too. You know, and if they go up against a, um, an opponent that's, um, you know, an egalitarian society maybe that's not a warlike society who maybe isn't their equal in military strength and doesn't want to be because that's not who they are, um, you know, maybe the only thing to quell that dominator society is some sort of threat like climate change, you know, to make them have to work together with people who have other values. I don't know. I'm just talking out loud here. Um, but, um, you know, it, well, I it, would like I, to I, think I, that climate change might be something, you know, that would bring us together as a species because it is an enormous threat uh, globally to everyone around the world. Um, you know, and uh, I'm not sure I see that actually happening, but it would be nice if it was. You know, I yeah, think one of the hopeful things about climate change, if we actually address it, is that we actually do have the tools and the understandings and the technology we need to do something different. And the things that we actually need to do around climate change are actually, like, nice things. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like, we've got to stop burning horrible, polluting fossil fuels that destroy everything around them just in the process of getting them out of the ground and turn to safe, clean renewables. Uh, we need to look at how we take carbon out of the atmosphere 
And the best way to do that, this is something that we're really talking a lot about in the permaculture world, is through building living, healthy soil, uh, through using plants to uh, take carbon out and build humus, which is soil organic carbon, and is a way to take that carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it in soil where it turns into fertility, and it helps the soil hold water, it helps mitigate drought, uh, it helps people grow more plants that are healthier, uh, it adds more nutritional value to the food that's grown on it, helps people have better livelihood, it helps prevent erosion. There's no downside to it. Um, only only, only to the dominator corporation who's going to lose money, you know. It, yes. Um, the only problem with it is it doesn't lend itself to making such huge profits for corporations. This is true. But yeah. yeah. Other than that, well, uh, yeah, it is, I think it's, the hopeful thing I see is that actually even governments are starting to understand this. And last year in the Paris talks, um, there was a real commitment by some governments like France to say, okay, we're going to make soil building a big part of our approach to climate change. And California, too, we've got some legislation that's very forward-thinking about helping to fund this transition what people are calling carbon farming or carbon ranching, so that we're looking at building healthy soil as part of a strategy both for uh, transforming our agriculture to something that's more organic and more locally based and also pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So does so from what you just said, does that mean there are going to be some propositions on the ballot in November that we should be voting for or against? Um, not so much propositions. Actually, there already are laws in California. Um, there's a very, very good climate change law that Governor Brown signed into law that helps to fund some of these transitions. Okay. All right. Well, that is some that is some hopeful news. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And and you know, I guess no matter who the dominator is, you know, whether they're another country or they're a multinational corporation, um, you know, somehow I guess you know they have to feel it's in their best interest uh, to to stop their their normal mo, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. something has to get them to. Uh, shift gears and adopt uh, a new a new way of being in the world, and um, I, I guess that that's um, you know I guess obviously that's the key. You know what what does it take? Uh, you know to make either you know the the warlike tribe or the dominator multinational corporation uh, stop their destructive ways and live in partnership with the other peaceful people in the world. <laughs> um, you know, I guess if we knew knew the answer to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think that, first of all, people do need to see an alternative and to know that there is an alternative. Again, for me, that's an important aspect of my own writing is to make sure that there are alternatives that are visible and that we help spark 
those alternatives in the imagination as well. Um, yes. And I think people need to actually figure out strategically uh, how do we take power away from those who are abusing it and those who are using it to perpetuate the destruction. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I also do a lot of teaching, both of goddess stuff and feminist spirituality, but also of permaculture, which is ecological design. But we always try to teach it in a context also with activism. So giving people the understandings of what those alternatives are and then the skills for saying, and how do we organize around them? How do we pressure the system to turn away from these destructive practices? How do we remove the pillars of support for the things that are destroying the earth and put our resources into the things that can regenerate our lives and the environment around us? Well, let me ask you, um, you know, all of that all that being said, you know, you have been a, you know, a leader in the pagan community trying to, um, you know, forge that, you know, that, that path. Um, you know, do you have hope in the future that, uh, um, you know, uh, paganism may mature to a point where we see more clones of you, you know, more pagans <laughs> on the front line, you know, actually out there, uh, fighting for the earth. I mean, after all, you know, we're supposed to be an earth-based spirituality. I mean, have have you been a little bit disappointed that there's not more activism in the pagan community? Well, I think there is a lot of activism in the pagan community, and there are a lot of pagans in the activist community. They don't always do it waving a big flag saying, hello, I'm a pagan. Um, but we're okay. certainly seeing leadership right now in the activist community from indigenous people uh, at places mm-hmm. like Standing Rock where uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, so many tribes come together under the leadership of the Lakota to stand up and say no to this North um, this Dakota Access Pipeline and do it in such a way that's so powerful and so beautiful, you know, where their primary message is, Water is life. Um, That is such a powerful and deep and spiritual message. Uh, So So I think the status. What's the status of that right now? Do you know where where they're at? I mean, I saw they had won a minor victory a few weeks ago, uh, but are they're still out there, aren't they? They're still out there, and they're planning to continue and stay out there, and I think to really try to maintain the camp through the winter. Uh, and I think I saw something saying the Fed, federal government had said they weren't going to evict them. So I think they're in it really for the long haul. And, they, yes, they have won some victories, uh, which is very exciting and very heartening. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, we, we could uh, take some lessons, uh, take some lessons mm-hmm. from them for sure. Um, so, uh, what other things are you are you working on right now? Um, if you your audio book is now out, um, what's uh, what's the next primary thing on your agenda? Well, I am teaching a number of permaculture design courses. Uh, we call them Earth Activist Trainings because they include a grounding in spirit and a focus on organizing and activism. 
so we've got one coming up in January. Uh, we've got a social permaculture course coming up in the spring, which really looks at what are some of the patterns of human interaction and how do we design structures that can generate beneficial human relations? How do we actually learn to get along better with one another and organize better together? Um, we've also been doing a lot of fundraising so that we can offer diversity scholarships for people of color and differently abled people so that we can be building the diversity within the movement. Uh, and um, I have my own land. I'm really fortunate to have uh, 40 acres of land where we're developing a carbon ranching model, and that's always very exciting, um, really looking at growing more and more healing herbs and Chinese medicinals uh, and thinking about... You can give me feedback on this. I'm thinking about doing an Earth Priestessing Apprenticeship Program that would start sometime oh. this spring that would bring together the magic and the spirituality with the actual hands-on work in the Earth. So uh, mm. those are some of my upcoming projects. Well, that sounds interesting. I, I know one a priestess that I knew, a priestess of Demeter, uh, got so much out of uh, actually planting wheat and mm -hmm. watching the life cycle of wheat throughout the year as it tied into the Demeter Persephone rituals as well. You know, it just brought a whole new dimension to you know, uh, her as a priestess, to the work, to her whole outlook. You know, it... Um, it, it you know ju just adds that next layer, you know. Yes. I think there's something about that reality of actually getting your hands in the dirt, actually working mm -hmm. with the plants, um, you know, singing and chanting and meditating about healing the earth, but then actually knowing how do you go take a piece of toxic ground and restore it to health and restore it to life. Well, very, and, and very don't you well, you know, and, it, and sometimes, you know, maybe uh, maybe this is a little bit of, of, of my pessimism peeking through, uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't think it's been good that so many of us are so separated from, from the land. You know, uh, we all go get our food at the grocery store, you know, mm -hmm. and we, we're just, we have that, that huge disconnect. Uh, you know, to the point where how many of us even grow anything and watch it sprout. And it's such an amazing experience. I, I, I mean, you know, maybe it's silly to make so much out of it, but just to, you know, to um, tend a garden and, and really watch it grow and watch the cycles, um, I, I, I just don't think enough of us... Um, value that and experience it anymore and we've lost the knowledge that that we need I think to be able to feed ourselves if there were some sort of apocalyptic thing that would happen well luckily a lot of us actually haven't lost that knowledge and there is more and more of a movement again for people to 
do urban farming and gardening, even for people who live in cities, to have farmers markets, uh, to relocate our food growing in and around our cities, and for people to really get back to that hands-on knowledge. Uh, you know, for me, it's very exciting to be growing herbs and looking at how do we also grow our medicine as well as our food. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, um, yeah, sustainability. To, I think yeah. it's very empowering for people when you do have those skills, and you can say, "All right, well, you know, I actually do know how to feed myself and how to provide for right. myself." Right, right. Well, I, I think that I, I think that priestess program would be uh, an incredible thing. Um, I, I mean, it, and I don't know if if you want to say at this point, but uh, is where is your land? Um, if you it's were to do something like that, in Western Sonoma County, in Northern okay. California. Okay. So it's about uh, three hours north of San Francisco. Okay. Well, I seriously doubt you would have trouble getting any takers. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, sure, can, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure. People can check my website yeah. for upcoming stuff, or go to my website and sign up at starhawk.org, and then you'll be first on the list to find out as I uh, formulate this and figure out the details of it. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty yeah. cool. Well, well, Starhawk, is there anything you wanted to uh, to mention uh, tonight? I mean, was anything about the uh, you know the the political situation we're faced with in November, or anything else going on that uh, you want to chat about? Maybe I haven't thought to ask. Yeah, I really want to encourage every every listener to get out there and be sure you vote this election. And personally, I'm supporting Hillary Clinton very strongly. Um, I feel like we need someone like her in the White House, somebody who actually knows how to work the system and who has tremendously good domestic policies on women, on um, all of the domestic issues that we care about, you know, she's been a staunch advocate for things like children and education and health care and women's rights and the rights of people of color. And um, there's just, I mean, there's just no comparison between her and that abusive rape culture advocate who's her opponent. Right. Um, well, you know, I, I'm more concerned about the people who are maybe going to lodge a protest vote. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, but I certainly don't want Trump in the White House. And I, I know it's hard for maybe some of the Bernie people who felt uh, misused by the DNC. Um, you know, uh, how how what would you say to them to not cast their vote for, say, Jill Stein, for instance? Well, I was a Bernie supporter, too, in the primaries, and I would say we have had our protest vote. Voting for Bernie in the primaries was the protest vote, and it was tremendously effective. It's pushed the Democratic Party into a much more progressive platform than it's ever had, and or at least had for years. Um, but if Trump gets into the White House, uh, that protest vote is not going to 
serve anybody. You know, it's going to be an utter disaster for every progressive cause that we believe in and for the earth because we really are at a time now where we can't afford to have an idiot climate change denier in charge of one of the key players in the world right now. So, um, and, you know, Jill Stein, like, I like her policies. Her policies, I like her policies better than Hillary's policies. But there's two aspects to being president. There's the policies you advocate, and there's actually, like, the work of governance and knowing how to get things done. And Jill Stein is completely unqualified. (laughs) She's, like, been on the town council of Lexington, you know, compared to, I mean, I like my policies even better than Jill Stein's. If I like anybody's <laughs> policies, right? But I don't, I'm not running for president because they would eat me alive. I wouldn't have the first idea how to deal with that system. So I think right. this is a moment. You know, there was a young woman at my talk the other night who said something I thought was very insightful. She said, you know, Hillary gets all this hatred. But really what people hate is the political system. You know, Mm -hmm. we all do. We're frustrated as hell with the political system. And I am as much or more as anybody. Um, But she's getting the brunt of that, just like women always get the brunt of everything. And um, I feel like she's kind of become... You know, she's like your sort of she's like the the woman in the divorce who ends up with the kids and so she's the one who has to get them off to school in the morning and make mm-hmm. them eat their vegetables and get them to do their homework and then there's flashy old dad who comes in, you know, on the weekend and looks like he's such a much more exciting guy. Um yeah. but you know, she's the playing that role of the responsible one, and um, it's so easy for people to just rebel against that, and it really is a form of, I think, deeply unconscious misogyny. Um, But right now, I feel like what we need in the White House is the responsible mom and not, obviously, the irresponsible. And 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 really, like destructively um, bigoted and prejudiced asshole. Well, and and I think the other thing about Trump to think about Mm -hmm. is, you know, people who might be considering voting for him or voting for him because he's not the, quote, establishment, but they have to look at who he's the figurehead of. You know, he is the figurehead of the Republican Party. And if people think for a moment with his lack of experience in Washington that, you know, it's not going to be the Republicans at the helm forcing their policies and their agendas. You know, I I really think, you know, he would be little more than a figurehead and a blowhard. Um, I really don't think he would know how to get anything done. It would be the Republicans who would sort of just take charge behind the scenes and let him go out and act like he's really the one uh, in charge. You know, and so what would we, you know, so a vote for Trump isn't a vote for 
you know, anti-establishment. It's just a vote for the Republicans. And if you're anti-Republican, you know, because, I mean, I know I know people who are thinking about voting for Trump because they somehow think he's going to be different than the Republican Party. Uh, and I don't think he will. You know, I really don't. And actually what he's done is so much more destructive than that because he has made misogyny and bigotry and prejudice acceptable. And if he gets into office, we are looking at something really, really ugly that's going to come yeah. down. You know, And I think anyone who thinks about actually voting for Trump is, you know, it's really lives of people of color, of Muslims, of immigrants, of women uh, are at risk if this guy gets into office. He needs to be not just defeated, but defeated by an enormous landslide. Yeah, and and that would, I think, uh, sort of quell that ugliness that uh, has has been given license to uh, show itself in the you know, in, in, in the um, in the light of day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's making bullying look like a viable political right? yeah. strategy. And yeah, um, well, I, I have that to gets admit, rewarded. It, it, we're all in trouble. Well, you know, I have to admit, it would kind of be fun for just a quick little moment to see. Uh, you, you know how you, we always see these film clips of these other uh-huh. governments where the two sides go to blows. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I almost would kind of like to see, um, you know, that happen in Congress just once, you know, just <laughs> once. I don't know. I know that's crazy, but it, it would be kind of interesting. <laughs> um, anyway, I, all right. I probably shouldn't have said that publicly, but <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> um well, well, Starhawk is uh, be- before I, I say goodnight because we're um, getting close to being out of time. Is um, anything else you'd like to share with listeners? Um, just to say, you know, I think this is such a tremendously exciting and important time to be alive, and encourage everybody to really think about why you're alive at this moment when we so desperately need to make this great transformation. What's the role you came into play? And to take your courage and all your confidence and step up and play it as big and as beautifully as you can. Yep, find your sacred roar. Don't abdicate your power. There we go. Thank you for that inspiration. Uh, Well, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Um, Good luck with everything. And uh, I look forward to your audio book. I'm such a slow reader. I might actually have to get the audio book. Well, you know, uh, an audio book will get you through times of great stress and tension, like the upcoming elections, <laughs> uh, better than meditation. Quiet those voices in your head. Just put another voice in your ear and uh, get something there you else go. happening in your mind. So. 
There you go. There you go. Uh, sounds like perfect uh, advice for people who are dreading uh, election day. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that wouldn't be a bit, wouldn't be a bad way to spend it. Well, good luck with everything, and I'm sure listeners will go to your website to find out about the priestess training and all the other um, permaculture events and activities you have. And uh, um, you know, uh, thank you for uh, contributing to the next anthology of mine that's coming out. I really do appreciate your support. And uh, like I have always said, anytime you've got something new going on, um, you know, you're always welcome to come back on the show. Well, thank you so much. And good luck with the show and the anthology, which is very exciting, and all the wonderful work that you're doing. All right, then. All right, good night. Appreciate your time. Okay. Well, that... uh, that was Starhawk with us tonight, and um, I wanted to just uh, close the show with uh, this uh, reading from uh, the Hopi Elders, which uh, I promised uh, promise you that we would have. And um, it comes from Robert Roskind, who was on Facebook, and uh, this was posted, and uh, it came my way. And this is what it says. It says, Our instructions from the Hopi elders, uh, Arabi, Arizona, Hopi Nation. You have been telling people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell people that this is the hour. And there are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? What are your relationships? Are you in right relation? Where is your water? Know your garden. Is it time to speak your truth? Create your community. Be good to yourself and not look outside of yourself for a leader. This could be a good time. There is a river flowing very fast. It is so great and fast that there are those who will be afraid. They will hold on to the shore. They will feel they are being torn apart and they will suffer greatly. Know that the river has its destination. The elders say that we must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep our eyes open and our heads above the water. See who is in there with you and celebrate. At this time, we are to take nothing personally, least of all ourselves. For the moment that we do, our spiritual growth comes to a halt. The time of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and your vocabulary all that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration we are the ones that we have been waiting for well i think with that dear listeners i will say good night and please tune in to our ancestor series uh, we'll have another show coming up on friday and the following monday and i will be back with you Uh, next Wednesday as usual Uh, and my guest is uh, Lazara Adams Uh, Lazara uh, hang on a second let me make sure I get this right Lazara Allen and we are going to be talking about women's ritual dances the secret language of the goddess Uh, thank you very much dear listeners and uh, until next week good night